Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. It's uh, Palm Sunday. It's, uh, we continue to miss you, uh, but we continue to celebrate and rejoice in this way with you also. Um, I hope you're all getting um, used to the life of homeschooling, of having to queue for your shopping, of trying to manage your diet when you're in the house all of the time, and uh, hope you're adjusting well. Um, we need a few laughs to keep us going during this time, don't we? And uh, if you want one, I suggest you go to one of our esteemed elders' Facebook page, Stephen McIntyre's, and uh, have a good look at his Ninja Warrior Assault course, and that will certainly give you a laugh. The week before that, we had the Armstrongs doing the Joe Wicks um, workout each morning with uh, some uh, dodgy lycra on view. And then the last week we've had Stephen McIntyre's Facebook page, and I'm just wondering who's going to rise to the challenge this week. I nominate Tristan Weir. Um, I hope that you've also found the rule of life helpful that we've put out. I've enjoyed doing that with my kids this week, saying the Lord's Prayer together at lunchtime and having communion each night together and spending some time just centering our lives around Jesus. Remember also, as it's been announced, our daily readings that are going to be happening throughout the week. I think you'll enjoy those and it will focus us on this beautiful Easter week that we're about to embark on together. <clears throat> this morning we're going to stay on the flow of John chapter 6 and John chapter into John chapter 7 this week, um, which is a bit of a watershed moment in this particular gospel of John's. And so I want to take five minutes or so just to try and summarize where we're at at the moment and um, uh, the, the, the flow of that gospel to date, because there's a, there's, there's a kind of moment of transition, I think, at the end of chapter 6, which we finished last week. We've obviously looked at the, the passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the big picnic out on the grass where there was enough room for everyone and enough food for everyone. And prior to this, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has done some great things. He's done some wonderful miracles. He's turned water into wine. He's had an encounter, a beautiful encounter with a Samaritan woman. He's had an encounter with Nicodemus. He's healed a man at the pool. And lots of people are starting to follow Jesus throughout these early chapters of the book of John. They're taken up with the charisma, if you like, of Jesus, his alternative type of rabbi that's come on the scene. And there's, a, I suppose there's a degree of hype surrounding Jesus that this could be our king. Um, whatever way the social media of that day or the way news filtered out, there was a degree of hysteria that had um, that had whipped up and people were following Jesus. And so after he had fed the 5,000, this only heightened that sense of hysteria when they were like, this could be our king. Remember it said that, let's, let's make him our king by force, it says. Um, I want you to imagine this a bit like a political campaign, something like you would see maybe on the TV where there's a, there's a degree of um, emotion and there's a degree of, in the atmosphere, of a swelling of support for some particular candidate. The, the news coverage, the way information is getting filtered out, seems to be uh, a growing momentum behind one or two particular candidates. This could be our guy, the people think. This could be our woman that's going to defend our rights, that's going to protect us, that's going to stick up for us, that's going to ensure our lives are better. This could be our guy. And from the crowd's point of view in these passages, these early passages of the Gospel of John, it seems like they're viewing Jesus like this, only with a bit more of a 
religious twist to it. In other words, it was like, this could not just be our guy, this could be God's guy for us. He could be the one that's come to um, defend us. And it looks as if when Jesus, out of genuine love and compassion, because that's who Jesus is, after he fed the 5,000, it seems like while he fed them physically, he also fed that desire within them for a hero, for somebody who would, it seemed to, this act seemed to like poke their alter ego, if you want to think of it like that. This person that would fulfill all their fears and all their insecurities. And the desire for a king who would really champion their rights, who would make them feel more secure and more powerful. If you know that the Bible and the story of the Old Testament, you'll know that this is kind of the story of the children of Israel. They want a king. It's okay to have God, but we want something other than God. We want a king as well, like the other nations. And the story of the Bible is really that while God ended up giving them those kings, that those kings didn't really measure up, for the most part, to the kingship of Jesus. And Jesus isn't like any of the other kings. But the people here, even still in the New Testament, seem to want that kind of a king. And so when they try to take him by force and make him king, Jesus slips away. And he was showing them an alternative. He's always wanted to show them an alternative type of king and an alternative type of rule and reign to the kingdoms of this world. It looks different to the politics and the rules and reigns of other kingdoms in our world. And so last week we learned that as Jesus crossed over the Lake of Galilee, he, he kind of laid it on the line about what his kingdom would look like. He told them the truth, which is unlike what a lot of other political kind of candidates or potential kings will do. Um, they will say things that they usually can't fulfill. Whereas Jesus showed his hand in a way. He, he showed them exactly what his kingdom was going to look like, what his time in office would involve. He opened up his heart to them and refused to manipulate them, refused to lead them up the wrong path. Rather, he told them how he felt about them lovingly, but plainly, Jesus helped them understand the cost of what it would mean to follow him and to be part of his kingdom. And sadly, many people, we're told, left him. Jesus wanted them to realize that he wasn't the kind of king who just simply wanted them to be his subjects, that he would give them what they want and that they would do what they're told. In fact, later on in John's gospel, some of you will know these well-known words in chapter 15 where Jesus explicitly says, I don't want to call you servants. I want to call you friends. I want to make known to you what the Father has made known to me. And so Jesus was inviting them into a deeper type of friendship, a deeper type of communion, a deeper level of intimacy. I mentioned this phrase last week, and it's important to try and grasp this and, and meditate on. It was a mutual indwelling of his presence based on the surrender of one's heart to the other. And uh, any true friendship, if it's going to have any depth to it, has to work like that. And Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father, which is what God has always wanted to tell us and what is, what is God's heart has always been towards us. And Jesus was here to demonstrate that love to us in his life and in his teachings. And he would fulfill that demonstration of love in and through his death. And so the message was to deny ourselves, to go through a form of dying, but in going through this dying, to enter into life. And not just any old life, but life in all its fullness, life 
that's abundant. And that kind of life will feel like you're being born again, all over again. You'll be entering into a different reality, a different dimension. And so when we get to the end of chapter 6, we have this kind of watershed moment because we read that many of the crowds find Jesus' truth-telling. He's laid it out plainly. They find that cost too much, and they leave. Jesus has opened up his heart to them, and unfortunately, they have closed their hearts to him. And so it feels like there's a a sifting that starts to happen at this point in John's gospel. And that's why I wanted just to summarize it for you. Because as we enter into the next chapter, and as we read the rest of the gospel, we come to realize that this sifting kind of continues. We start to see whose hearts are really committed to Jesus. And I feel like there's three forms of sifting that I think the Holy Spirit wants to do in us that we see through John chapter, the end of John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. And I want to leave those with you today. And so the first portion of scripture I want to read to you is at the end of John chapter 6. Um, and it's the last few verses from verse 60. And this is what it says. Let me read the word of the Lord to you. I'm going to read three portions of scripture and say a little bit after each one of them. Okay? So here goes. John chapter 6 verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and full of life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say this, This is why I have told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Here we see the first kind of sifting. It's the sifting of allegiance or the sifting and the refining of our loves. What do we truly love? Many of the crowds leave Jesus at this point. The twelve don't. They stick and they commit their hearts to Jesus. The sitting on the fence period seems to have ended decisions need to be made. I don't know if you have ever had the experience of going out with somebody or maybe um, starting to like get friendly with somebody and you move through the phase of being friends and then it feels like it's maybe more than just being friends and somewhere along the line you're thinking you need to have that kind of chat and it goes along the lines of do you think that maybe like sort of like kind of like this could be potentially like a maybe sort of thing and, um, and, and it's that kind of awkward conversation where you're trying to like acknowledge a level of deeper commitment. Or I know when I um, started to date Rachel, after a couple of months, we went, th- went through one particular night, I had this conversation with her where it was like, do you think that we could be potentially like sort of falling in love? And she was like, well, what do you think? And I was like, well, what do you think? And, what do you? and somewhere along the line, one of us had to say, um, and I 
managed to be a man about it and make the first move and say, you know, I, I think we're falling in, in love. And the point I'm trying to make is it's a rather awkward kind of vulnerable moment, isn't it? Because in opening our heart to somebody else in that moment, we risk the potential for being rejected. And in these moments, what Jesus had done with the crowd on the other side of the lake is he had opened his heart up. He told them quite plainly how he feels about them, what he longs for, where he longs to bring them. And a number of people in that time, they reject him. He is hoping that his allegiance to them will match um, their allegiance to him. But sadly, we read that it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And yet the disciples who, as we said last week, had lived through the storm, they, opposite to that, they said, no, we believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you are the Holy One of Israel. Jesus, we are all in with you. We are pledging our allegiance to you. Where else would we go, Jesus? We don't understand everything about you. We haven't got all the answers just yet, but nobody speaks like you do. Nobody makes us feel the way you make us feel. Nobody makes us feel like we belong the way you do. Where else can we go? In these days, there's no doubt, I believe, that Jesus is sifting his church. The middle ground in our world today are being called to make decisions. Those sitting in the fence, Jesus is trying to get their attention. People who have been spectators are being challenged to become actual followers. And I'm not saying that in any way that God has sent this situation with the coronavirus to say this. But the reason I know he's using this time is because I know he was doing this before all of this broke. God has been doing this for a while. And this is what God has always been longing for. The stakes are being raised and have been being raised for a while. The Spirit is moving across the world as God desires to have his people back and his church back. And there's so much shaking going on in the world globally and politically and economically. And in the midst of all of that, the Holy Spirit is convicting the world and there is a process of purification and holiness going on in the church of Jesus because the work has to start there. And so in these times that we live in, like in these days that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee, there is a sifting of our allegiance. What do we truly love? The nominal are being separated more so from the passionate. Not because they're better, just because they're making choices because love is a choice. The committed are being sifted from the apathetic. The fans are being distinguished from the true followers. And the emergence of a remnant has started to come. Because God wants, as the psalmist said, an undivided heart. God doesn't want a six out of 10 or a seven out of 10 offering. Because he doesn't want to give you a six out of 10 or a seven out of 10 life. He wants to give you a 10 out of 10 life. In fact, It doesn't make sense mathematically, but he wants to give you a 20 out of 10 life because it's an overflowing, abundant life that you don't just get fulfilled, but the fulfillment you feel overflows out of you for others to be blessed. And so this sifting of our allegiances, I could even call it a sifting of our loves because what we love is what we will give our allegiance to. It's what we will give our habits to, our time to, our money to, maybe even our worship too. And at this time, God is calling us as his people to give him our loves, to give him the depths of our heart as many of our other loves are stripped away in these moments. John Calvin talked about the church as a, 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 sorry, about our hearts as an idol factory. 
we, we just seem to produce idols as kind of fickle human beings where we find security and belonging in other things and in other people. And some of those things are actually not bad things in and of themselves, but we end up loving them more than we love Jesus. And I feel like the Lord wants to sift that. And he wants us to be like Peter, that even though we don't have all the answers, we said, Jesus, whom else would we go to? There's nothing else like the love that you have, the words that you have. And so our allegiances is 100% wholly orientated towards you. Let me pray for that for a moment. And so Holy Spirit, I just ask that our hearts would submit wholeheartedly to your Lordship Jesus. And you would help us to be a people whose love and loving allegiance is to you and to none other. We pray, Lord, even that first commandment, to love the Lord our God. And Lord, the greatest commandment with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength in these days, in Jesus' name. The second thing being sifted are our motives, or our pride, I believe. As we enter John 7, it feels like we enter a place where there's even more confusion about Jesus. Many of the crowds are unsure about him. He's ruffled the feathers of the hierarchy of the religious elite. His own brothers, were told, don't get him if you read the passage. Some people think um, he's, the Messiah would show um, more signs than this. Other people think, well, he is the Messiah because look at the signs he's already doing. There's, there's confusion. And the context for chapter 7 is that there's a festival happening in Jerusalem. And uh, this is the festival of tabernacles, which was an eight-day festival in the life of the children of Israel, where Jews reminded themselves of the time where they used to wander in the wilderness in tents, uh, following the cloud, which we know all about in Emmanuel ported down, and they would make these makeshift shelters during this celebration. They'd basically do like make a tent and uh, sleep in the tent, have meals in the tent, and remember the days when their ancestors used to have to live like that. And this festival also had a kind of agricultural feel to it. It was like the end of harvest season. Think of it like a harvest festival, actually. And this festival was the climax to this where all sorts of celebrations took place. And so his brothers say to Jesus in chapter 7, they say, verse 4 and 5, if you want to become a public figure, don't act in secret. Let's go to the festival and show yourself to the world is what they say. Show yourself to the world, Jesus. You're, you're a superstar. Show yourself. Now's the time. And we're told that Jesus doesn't go with them. He says, it's not my time yet. My time has not come. But then a few verses later, we told, we're told that he sneaks up in secret, not in public. And what we learn in these moments is that Jesus doesn't show himself to the world in the way we think that we should show ourselves to the world. In worldly terms, this festival would be the best place to show yourself. The stage is set. The bright lights are there. Everyone will be in Jerusalem. Jesus, go and do a few miracles. Get a few more teaching gigs. This is the next step up in your career. This is how you're going to reveal how good you really are. But Jesus won't be tempted by this kind of stardom. He's a different type of king. As we think about on Palm Sunday, um, nonetheless, when, it, when we think about Jesus riding on a donkey, not coming on a chariot, this is the kind of Jesus who will not be tempted into the cult of celebrity that's so prevalent in our culture today and so prevalent in the church. He reveals himself in another way, in a different way. This is not my time. 
This is not how I'm going to show myself. Remember that Jesus had these kind of temptations by the, the devil in the wilderness to do something spectacular. Throw yourself down off this temple, Jesus. Go on, show us something amazing. And Jesus rebuked that. That's not the way he's going to do it because Jesus is never about his own popularity. He's not about making a name for himself in the way that we understand that term. What Jesus is showing us that it's all about obedience to the Father, walking in step with the Father. Verses 14 to 20 in John 7 say, Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed. How did this man get such great wisdom without being taught? Jesus said, My teaching is not my own. It comes from one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God um, will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my own. Whoever speaks in their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent me is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. When everyone else wants to put Jesus on a pedestal as a great teacher and order, oh, Jesus, you're a great teacher. How did you get so great? Jesus is humble and self-effacing, really. And he says, my teaching isn't my own. It flows from the Father. And Jesus is showing us that everything that he is doing is flowing from the Father's heart. It's not about personal glory. It's not about man's praise. It's not about conceit. It's about being submitted to the will of the Father. He says, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. For those of us who want to give our full allegiance to Jesus, for those of us who want to enter into the life that Jesus has for us, there is a sifting in not just our allegiances, but in our motives. And this gets to the core of who we are. It's a challenge to our pride. It's a challenge to our motives. I've, many, I've found in my own life, and, and I know this is the same, because many of us are living in a moment where the roles that we that we, uh, that we did live out in a day-to-day way have been stripped from us. We're struggling to know who we are. We're struggling when our identity has been stripped of our function to really understand our true identity. And what I've found is when that is peeled back and the stuff rises to the surface, what I've started to realize is there was there's stuff there that was about personal glory. And what people think of me matters more to me than I wanted to. And it's moments like this where I find myself not being able to do the things that I do every day that I realize how much identity. All of a sudden, I notice the insecurities. How many people are going to watch this talk today? How many likes am I going to get or not? All of those peculiar, almost childish insecurities for personal glory start to surface. And I feel the Holy Spirit wants to sift that in those moments, wants to refine that. And Jesus doesn't condemn me in those moments but he just invites me to come to him and he says, son, the stuff that you're looking for personal glory and I just want you to give that to me. As this stuff comes to the surface, just give it to me and let me replace that with perfect sonship, with the love of the Father. Jesus says, operate like me out of perfect sonship. Operate in the timings that I operated in, which was walking in submission to the Father. And so God, we pray that that sifting work would happen, that deep work inside our hearts and spirits, Lord, that you would deal with our motives, that you would deal with our pride. Lord, as we crucify our flesh again today, we give ourselves to you and we receive the love of the Father to walk as sons and daughters in sonship. In Jesus' name.
Amen. And finally, final point is, there's a sifting of the very source of life itself. In this festival scene, Jesus does make it to the temple eventually. Uh, he continues to try and put out there his invitation for people to come. In verse 28 and 29, it says, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, he cried out. So there's emotion in this. He cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. In verse 28, Jesus is crying out, feel the emotion in his voice. He said, I'm here. I'm here from the Father. He has sent me. I'm here to show you what he's like. And I'm here to bring you to that place of intimacy that I enjoy with them. Jesus is offering an invitation to the very source of life. And he's saying to the people, and he's saying to the Pharisees who he loves, and to those affected by the Pharisaical system, he says, I know you love the law, but you're judging it wrong. You're, you're sticking to the law, to the letter, but missing the spirit of the law. You actually don't know the Father's love. You're void of the Father's love. So you've interpreted the, the law in such a way to build a man-made system of religion that separates you from others to make you feel holier than them. You're not judging correctly. You're actually operating out of fear and control and not out of love. It feels to them like Jesus is threatening their sense of control, the sense of pride in their heart, which is being exposed. It seems easier as human beings to cling to power than to receive unconditional love. And Jesus is saying, what I want to offer you is an outpouring of my own personal presence, of my own spirit, an inward job. This is what the prophets foretold, that something would happen that in the appointed time where the Spirit would be poured out into your beings. And that would not just be poured into you, but it would bubble out over you. And so in verse 37, the culmination, if you like, of this particular feast, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let everyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus is crying out, it says, with a loud voice, If you're thirsty, come, come and drink. He's desperate for us to know that there is an opportunity for the very source of life itself to be his presence, to be the love that him, that he and the Father enjoy. Now, as I finish, just remember the context of this verse. It's the festival of the tabernacles. It's the climax, it says, on the last day of the festival. All sorts of celebrations have taken place over the previous eight days. And it always ended with the priests pouring out water over the temple. Every year, this is how the festival would have ended. Remember, it was a kind of like harvest feast where water and wine would have been poured out and prayers would have been prayed for the next season for there to be water and wine and harvest and crops and all of those kind of things for the people. And Jesus is playing in this tradition and he's telling the people something new is happening. And so on the last day, as the people are about to return to their homes and hope and pray that there'll be enough food and produce and water for them in the days ahead in this dry and thirsty and arid landscape, Jesus stands up and he says, you might be fearful of this season that's approaching, 
but fear not. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink for something more than just physical water. In this area of Palestine, the Dead Sea was so, so low um, beneath sea level. And so there was aqueducts in the mountains, which you can still see. And these aqueducts were dug so that when a flash flood or a storm came or when the rains came, that they would catch the water and that there would be uh, cisterns there for water to drink. And I just believe in this season, it feels lean. It feels where people are dry and thirsty and desperate. That the Spirit is sifting our hearts and doing a deep work in us, building like aqueducts in our hearts because there is a day where the Spirit is pouring himself out that's coming in increased measure. And he wants to fill us and to flood our lives with his presence. The reign of the Spirit, God's own presence is coming. These are days when God is sifting the religious spirit of control to a spirit-filled life. The truth is we all love a bit of control, don't we? And it's not necessarily all bad, but we're in a unique situation where we have to give up control, where we have to relinquish control. Our human abilities, our human capabilities can't get us out of this situation, and there is an opportunity for us to relinquish human, self-centered, independent constructs of control and conformity for the liberty of a spirit-filled life where Jesus alone is our source. Jesus' heart is so open to us today. The question is, are ours closed in fear and suspicion and our desire to be in control? Or are we willing, as Jesus cries out in a loud voice, come to me if you're thirsty, and rivers of living water will flow from your innermost being. You see, when we drink from Jesus, the Spirit moves in us that cuts across all of those independent constructs, independent defensive mechanisms, ways that we want to control our own identity. The Spirit's love and powerful presence cuts across all of them and fills us with a wholeness that only Jesus can give. And not only fills us, but overflows out of us so the world can receive the life-giving presence of Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for that today as well. I pray that you would sift our hearts so that the very source of our strength, of our life, of our purpose and identity would flow out of our innermost beings through a moving of your Spirit. So we welcome you in these days. King of glory, come into our hearts afresh. We give you our wholehearted allegiance. We ask you to create within us a clean heart, clean up our motives, O oh God. We don't want any of this for personal glory, but we want to operate out of perfect sonship. And we know that we can only do that as you sift the very source of our life to come and to flow out of your spirit in the deepest parts of our being. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Move in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you the rest of this day.